I want to again, if you are a guest with us today, extend our welcome. My name is Josue Pernillo. I am the pastor, pastoral, sorry, I have a hard time with my A's, pastoral intern here. And I'm really glad to be with you this morning, especially on a long three-day weekend. And so with that, let's turn to the text. That's Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And Philippians is after Ephesians. I always get lost sometimes in the epistles. Don't tell Luke, but sometimes I get lost. Oh, he's right there. Um, so let's start. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can gather here. Thank you that we can look into your word. And I pray, Lord, as we look into it, that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would help us to see what we need to see. Help me, Lord, as I preach. Help me to be humble. Help me to speak clearly. We look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... I have lived in Illinois most of my life. And I'm really close to somebody now that doesn't think Illinois is a beautiful state. But I think Illinois is a beautiful state. I love it. I love riding my bike and not having to worry about how long I can go because there's really no changes in elevation. So you really can ride for a long time. And I know some of you come from different places or different states or different cities. And so coming to Illinois sometimes feels... Uh, a little underwhelming. Though I promise you, there is beauty here. The closest I can come to understand that is once when I was studying abroad, I went to a country that had some of the most beautiful scenery that I've ever seen. Rolling hills and forests and different animals and beautiful people. And it was during this trip when I went hiking. And I've been hiking in Illinois, right? But this was like hiking, hiking. We went to like the mountains and I was like, it'll be fine. Like I walk a lot. And so then we did this like 12 hour hike. And I was like, 12 hours, that's not that long. So I didn't bring water. Like I didn't bring a lunch. I didn't bring any like trail mix. Like I understood why it's called trail mix because it's for the trail. And so suffice it to say, it was awful, right? It was strenuous. I was sweating. I didn't enjoy it for most of the time. It was my first really foray into it. And then we made it to what I call the pinky toe of the mountain, which was all the hike was. And before us was the whole mountain range. And you can tell, like, before it, there's a little plateau, and then they climb up. And then I was like, we got to climb that. Like, I was like, I want to go back. And it was. We really were about to go back. But then I turned around. 
and you could see the whole valley and you could see the clouds and you could see the sun hitting a cloud and casting a shadow. It was like a scene from a movie. And the more that you looked at it, the more beautiful it became. And that made that hike worth it. And the more that you looked at the nature and there was a stillness there, there even was like a little creek. It was like a movie. And the more that I looked at it, the more lovely it became, the more awestruck that I was by it. And you're left to wonder. It's good sometimes after work to look at something, to stare at it in wonder. And that's what we're going to do today with the word of God. We're going to take a moment with six verses and we're going to stare at them. And we're going to watch them. And I hope that you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So this week, we're back to the letter to the Philippians. The letter contains many beautiful themes like joy, living with a gospel mindset, friendship, humility, unity. In today's passage, we engage with some of the most intricate and beautiful themes of Christology found anywhere in the New Testament. And by, by that, I mean this week, we're going to stare and think about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for his people. The Philippian church was in the midst of internal and external tensions and pressures. Paul begins his whole letter by describing to them his life and his ministry, his struggles, his hopes, his prayers. At the end of chapter 1, it transitions. He begins talking to the Philippian church about their hopes, their struggles, their dreams, their prayers. We come here as he's talking to them about possible divisions that could have arisen amongst them. And these are the most, some of the most profound and beautiful verses of the entire letter. The hope is that by taking some time to look at them and analyzing what is being said about Jesus, at the end of the analysis, we'll be able to take a step back and ask ourselves what this means for us as his people. And what place does the way of Christ have in our lives? The sermon will be what I call top-heavy, meaning the first three points will take some time to dig deep into the verses. We're going to discuss some theological themes. We're going to think about what is being said. And the last point, we will focus on application. So throughout the sermon, if you're wondering what this all means and what the point of it is, we'll get there. So with that, Let's go to the first two verses, verses 6 through 7, and I'll reread them because they're so wonderful. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We begin here where Paul begins. This whole passage is what I call a thrill ride of Christology, which is just the study of Jesus. Looking at verses 6 through 7, we also see that. The way that we're going to discuss these two verses is by looking at the four major phrases. And by looking at those four major phrases, we're going to aim to understand who Jesus is. So let's begin with the first phrase. It says, he was in the form of God. And this may not seem like a big deal, but much discussion and many pages have been undertaken in order to explain thoroughly what is being said, and what is essentially communicated. This verse, and this phrase in particular, is usually taken 
by Reformed people as a proof text of the divinity of Christ. And that is the position that I, of course, am going to promote. But also this verse and this phrase in particular, um, sorry, although some have argued that it is too much to assume the points of the divinity of Christ from these verses, considering the context and considering what is actually being said, it is obviously speaking to the fact that Jesus is fully God. He, as it says here, is being in the form of God. And I take it as Paul communicating that Christ is God. It's not saying that he was similar to God. It's not saying that he has some aspects of the divinity. But what he's aiming to describe is that anything that you can ascribe to be divinity, you could ascribe to Jesus. Just as later in the letter it says Jesus was in the form of a servant, it doesn't mean that he was like a servant, but that Jesus was a servant. He came to serve his people. But here in the form of God means that the fullness of the divine is found in Christ. The mystery is profound. And it's only a couple of words, but it's deep. And so we have to think about it and explain it. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here we take it as a proof that Christ being in the form of God means that it's a sign that he was fully God, meaning that before creation, Christ was God. And that leads us to our next phrase, that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So if verse six begins with the description that God, Jesus is God, what is being said here? Some have taken it to mean that Jesus was not fully divine, and therefore he had to grasp at divinity. That's why it says there's something to grasp at. In other words, people read this text and say that Jesus was not fully divine. To try, he was trying to take by robbery or force something that was already and not his. This, of course, contradicts what we said about the first phrase, that Jesus was fully God. The verse is not saying that Jesus was not fully God, and therefore had the necessity to grasp that equality. And so how do we come to that conclusion? The trick really is with that word grasp, which if you do the research, it really doesn't appear like anywhere else in the New Testament or in Greek writing. It can mean to take by robbery and by force. Somebody that forcefully takes what he doesn't have from somebody else. But it can also mean to take something to use for your own advantage. The phrase can be understood that Jesus did not count the fact that he was equal with God as something to be used for his own advantage. The NIV translates it like this, and I think it's the clearest when it says, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This way of translating helps maintain the unity and the consistency of what's being said in verse 6. So what is being said then is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, being in the same essence as the Father and the Holy Spirit, did not count that equality to be of something to be used for his own advantage, to be manipulated. So, I told you it was top-heavy. This is the first two verses. Verse 7. So if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, did not use that divinity to his own advantage, what did he do? We come to verse 7, and it says that Jesus took the form of a servant. In some translations, it says that he emptied himself, which
which I just want to clarify, doesn't mean that he emptied himself of any of the divinity that he had. Jesus at no point ceased to be less than what he was, which is that he was fully God. He was, he was a being in the form of God, so he could never be less than that. However, what is being described here is explained by the next phrase. He emptied himself in that being in the form of God, he took to himself the form of a servant. He at no point ceased to be God, but he did take on the form of a servant. That is the humiliation, some theologians describe it like that, that Jesus went through. Although in essence, he never ceased to be glorious, he took to himself the lowly things of creation. This is the continuation of the thought that he did not think equality with God as an advantage to be exploited. And it's shown here in his actions by taking on the form of a servant. Though being in the form of God, he took on the form of a servant. Paul is comparing the two. So that, so that which is ascribed to each can be ascribed to Jesus. What can be ascribed to God as divine can be ascribed to Jesus because he's in the form of God. And similarly, what can be ascribed to a servant can be ascribed to Jesus because he took on the form of a servant. Although he was fully God, here it explains that he was also fully man. Jesus came as a servant. The final phrase wraps up the idea in verse 7 when it says, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who was begotten from the Father and not created, took to himself a human nature. This phrase should not be taken to mean that he only appeared to be human, but as the passages of Scripture show us, he was fully human. Jesus was born in a manger because there was no room at the inn. He was not born in a palace or in a capital or in a major city or province, but in a small town, which name we would not know unless he was born there. He was born of a virgin by taking on to himself a real body and a reasonable soul. Jesus was fully God and fully man. That is who he is. He, having all of the privileges of divinity at his disposal, did not use those privileges as a thing to be exploited. He is like us in every respect, yet without sin. And yet is also unlike us in the sense that he is fully God. One person with two natures. Jesus is glorious, and he always was. And he took to himself a form of a servant. Although he was in the same form of God, he did not exploit that right. And so if that is who Jesus is, let's go to verse 8. What has Jesus done? And it reads like this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've taken some time to answer who Jesus is, but now we take a step back and answer what Jesus has done. Of course they are related, and Paul here, especially in these verses, is using poetic logic. He continues by describing the fact that Jesus was found in human form, meaning that the things which you can ascribe to a person, you can ascribe to Jesus, which we talked about. We see that especially in the Gospels. Jesus was thirsty. He was tired. He fell asleep in the boat. 
Jesus was fully human. But here it also explains that Jesus was obedient. And in the Gospel of John, you see that clearly as Luke has gone through, that he was obedient to the Father. He did not act out of his own accord, but acted in perfect obedience. He humbled himself, not only in the taking on of human nature, but in living as a perfect man. He was not only born in a manger, but he worked as a carpenter. And when the time of his public ministry came, people didn't believe him, especially those that saw him grow up. He was ignored by his peers. He was mistrusted by the religious leaders. He was doubted by his very brothers, but faithfully he still proclaimed. Paul continues to elaborate the point and ties it deeply with the fact that Jesus was human. Jesus was obedient even as we read in the Isaiah passage this morning. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He faced the religious and political leaders of the Sanhedrin and he remained steadfast. He was mocked by Herod and commanded to do miracles like a show pony, but he did not waver. He was questioned by Pilate and though clearly innocent, he was still condemned to die. He was rocked, mocked by Roman soldiers. He was beaten by them. He was forced to carry his own cross and hung between two thieves. In one of the most vile and despicable forms of punishment thought of by men was laid upon him. He is the one who formed the stars. He was there at creation. He knows every single hair on our heads. He is the giver of life who was there from eternity and he was forced to carry his own cross. And in all these things, Jesus was obedient, even to death, even to death on a cross. Jesus, who was in the same form of God, did not take this as a means of exploitation, but rather in obedience. And through his labor, we are his beneficiaries. He did not use those advantages to glorify himself, but in obedience to God, lived the perfect life, with all of its disadvantages, and was faithful to the end. It would be shocking enough to try to wrap our head around the facts that of the Trinity, right? So, more on the second person of the Trinity. And then even more that the second person of the Trinity would subject himself to the limitations of human existence by taking onto himself a human nature and dying on a cross. He was subjected to a punishment that he did not deserve. Paul is summarizing briefly the entirety of the gospel. And so he continues, verses 9 through 11. And I'll read him because I like him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we come to the end of the ark. We know from the end of the Gospels and Acts that Jesus rose again. And that vindication was from God. That's why it begins here in these verses by saying, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And we begin to come to the crux of the passage. The call to those at Philippi and to us as well. Look to Jesus. The one who is faithful, who although fully divine, took to himself a human nature and lived a perfect life and made atonement for sinners like you and me. Paul, which it do, he does in his letters, there's points, if you read them, there's 
like in Romans, it happens to, he gets so excited with theology that he begins to burst out in song. And that's what these verses are. And he ends the song by saying that Jesus would be exalted above every other name, that every knee will one day bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord. Today, that is true. The whole story comes together as a beautiful song or poem does. It may be easy to miss or presume upon what is happening in these brief six verses, but there's a litany of truths. And in a stunning way, it explains to us both the character of God, but also the means by which God achieves his purposes. All sense and logic would ensnare us to think that Jesus, by dying, lost. That's what happens in the world. If you don't get the promotion, you lost. If you don't score the goal, you lost. However, these verses and the testimony of Scripture help us to consider the fact that in his death, wherein was his victory. The cross came before the crown. The entire system, which was common of considering glory and honor, has been turned on its head. Instead of using his privilege to come in pomp and circumstance, the one who was uncreated took to himself the form of a servant and was born in human likeness. He came and lived the perfect life and died and by so doing, serve as an atoning work for those who believe. Therefore, he is glorified. What Jesus did was glorious. He was always glorious. And what he did was glorious. His name should be exalted. And everyone one day will bow before him and declare him Lord. It is not only saying that after the fact it was made glorious, but rather what happened in itself is amazing, and it is glorious, that that's the appropriate response. Jesus did a glorious thing, and he will receive the appropriate glory due to him. It says in Revelation that by his blood, he ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was not by his machinations, that he made himself glorious. It wasn't by grasping or taking by which Jesus achieved his purposes, but in pouring himself out. Jesus is glorious, and what he did was glorious. By his actions, he achieved the redemptive plan of God for humanity. And it wasn't through armies or political intrigue, but by a carpenter's obedience that we all gather here today. The one who is fully God and fully man humbling himself in obedience to death, and that a death on the cross. That is how the plan was achieved. I love talking about these things, and if you want to keep talking about them, please come up to me after. But you may be wondering at this point, or you may be getting sleepy, which is okay. Actually, please don't sleep. <laughs> but the question remains, how then shall we live? And there's two points in particular that I want to hit. And that's the last point. What does this mean for us? First, one of the clearest implications from the passage is simply that we should repent and believe. The gospel call remains true. And it remains true today for us. 
Jesus came to die for sinners, of which I am the foremost. The gospel story is true. There are good news for us in Jesus Christ. The sinners can come today to him and cry out and believe that these truths remain as relevant as they did in that ancient Macedonian city as they do here in Champaign-Urbana. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took to himself a human nature, became fully man, and lived a perfect life, was obedient unto death, and was raised after three days, and all who cry out to him shall be saved. So today you may be here, and you may not believe, but I'd like to ask you a question. Are you looking for glory? And I mean true glory, for true substance and meaning. Do you find that by your efforts, you're not able to satisfy your own heart and your restless soul? Do you know that you are a sinner and are looking for the alleviation to your labors? There is Jesus. The gospel call remains true, and he still calls broken sinners who like sheep have gone astray. As we spoke about last week, or Luke spoke about, to those that seek the broken cisterns of this world, the call goes out to those who are sinners to repent and believe, to look upon Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And he calls sinners to himself. The one who bore our sins on the tree and, who's, and by whose obedience the righteousness of God has been imputed to us by God's grace in the application of the Holy Spirit in the hearing of his word, working faith in our hearts and that the faith of individual people. The next and clear implication is for believers. For us who do believe the gospel, who do trust in Jesus, what does this mean? And that's why we look at verse 5. I know some of you were wondering if I skipped it. I didn't, I promise. It begins, this whole series begins by saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because of the work of Christ, we are declared righteous, and we receive the benefits, which are not ours by merit, but by grace. The benefits, being ours, remind us of our calling as Christians, that we are invited and enabled to reflect by this same grace the attitude which was in Christ Jesus. We can look at glory differently, too, by both renewing the way that we consider it and the manner in which we achieve it. Paul spends six verses explaining in rigorous theology the attitude of mind that Jesus had, but begins that explanation by challenging believers to have this same attitude of mind. That is the thrust of everything we discuss. The verses make us take stock and step back and think to ourselves, how do I think of glory? And how do I think of achievement? How do I consider the way things are done in the world? We may be tempted like those in the letter to do things by force and might, to use our skills and our talents and our gifts for our own benefit. We can be tempted to look at houses and positions and titles and achievements and to try to take refuge in such things, to think that is what makes us glorious and worthwhile. And again, 
There's nothing wrong with a nice house. I love my house. I love my garden, even though it is neglected at the moment. That's not what I'm saying. But the issue is taking refuge in such things. That is the gentle and soft reminder of our Lord, as it says in the Gospel of Luke, that the measure of a man is not in the abundance of his possessions. It is not how well someone can speak or prove their point. It is not in titles or all the things that others speak of them. Christ calls us instead to use a different metric. We as Christians can be tempted to judge our lives and the lives of others by a worldly metric, by what is commonly viewed as good and glorious, whether it's a good job or a good degree or a good reputation. And what Paul is saying is it shows up most clearly in our relationships. The Philippians were fighting. They disagreed. James puts it this way. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And the truth of the matter is we go to war with each other because we want to win. We quarrel and we fight because our passions are at war within us. You desire, so you take. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you argue and you can plot and you can scheme. That is what's going on at Philippi. So Paul comes to correct them. And how does he correct them? He says, Jesus, being the second person of the Trinity, did not count that equality with God as something to be grasped. But he took on the form of a servant. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying, if you don't remember the bands, what would Jesus do? What I'm trying to say is this. Because of what he did, we can be humble too. That's what Paul is telling them. We, because we have been saved by God's grace, because we have been welcomed into the house of the king, we who have the benefits of being considered the children of God can be the first to run in humility. We can, by God's grace, take the low position. We can serve one another with our various gifts given by the Holy Spirit and in God's grace. We can be patient with those who are wrong. And please be patient with me because I'm often wrong. And forgiving with those who make mistakes. We can do those things not because they're just nice things to do, but because Jesus came, died, and rose again. Because although he had every right to come with pomp and circumstance and by sheer power of force, force people to do things, he didn't. And that's glorious. Glory is not found only in those who lead massive campaigns, who have the corner office or a great job, or always go on vacation with their family in nice places and their pictures look really good on Instagram. Glory is not those who are over a lot of money or massive portfolios. 
Glory is not only found in positions of prestige and power, as the world would consider it, but because of the gospel, we can look at glory in a different way. We can look at our lives through the lens of the gospel. Glory is serving those who are hurting. Glory is being faithful in our work and being diligent because we know that we labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory is loving and taking care of our families. Glory is a parent who wakes up early to make sure everybody has breakfast. Glory is a friend who takes time out of a busy day to offer a listening ear. It is a coworker that diligently works and serves others in love and kindness, although they may not get the promotion. Glory is in the parent that teaches songs to the kids that they'll know for the rest of their lives. It is true that perhaps there may never be books written about us and our lives and our achievements, that after several generations, our names would be lost to the annals of history and would only be remembered in whispers or some people would mention them in stories. But our names are written in the book of life. Our Lord knows us and he sees us. And it is the same Lord Christ who welcomes us into glory. The measure of a man's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. So let us humbly come to the Lord and by his grace go about our lives, not aiming to glorify ourselves, but in obedience to his word to live quiet and peaceful lives for the glory of God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can gather here and look to you and hope in you. You are our peace. You are the one who came. And by your righteousness, Jesus, we draw near. Help us to look to you in the different areas of our lives where we may be feeling overwhelmed, where we may be struggling or scared. You are the one who holds the whole world in your hands. And you know us. You know our frame. You know our struggles. So we look to you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.